Before we begin today's message, I want to read a couple passages of Scripture that I think are pertinent and certainly kind of run in the background or kind of be operating in the background of, uh, of our text today. And the first one then comes from Jeremiah chapter uh, 17, verse 5. It says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. The second one is in Psalm 118, verse 8. And nine, it says, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. And the next one is in Psalm 146, verses 3 through 5. We read, put not your trust in princes in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath depart, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord, his God. You get kind of the theme there of those verses. I'll quote one more, and this comes from the, uh, um, the book of Isaiah, where we learn that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And we should note that when Isaiah is talking about the grass withering and the flowers fading, he is not teaching us about horticulture or really any even about botany. What he is describing, he is describing the empires of men. He's actually literally describing the empire of, of, of Assyria. And he's saying, listen, it's going to come to an end. Kings come and kings go. They're like the grass of the field. They're like flowers. They come up for a while. They look really glorious and they look really spectacular. And you say, oh, my goodness, this is the most incredible thing I've ever seen. But grass withers, flowers fade. What endures? But the word of God endures forever. So with that kind of as our background, we enter into Daniel chapter 8 in our study through the book of Daniel. Let me just give you a little bit of a review and catch everybody up uh, so that we're all kind of moving in the same direction. And so when we started Daniel chapter seven, you'll recall that Daniel seven kind of starts a new section of the book, right? Daniel one through six, we would uh, label it historic narrative. It's really fairly simple. Uh, it's, it's a hist- it's history. All right. Such and such happened. And then You know, this king did that and this individual did such and such. And these were their responses. And basically it was some sort of crisis. Um, The people of uh, it recalls how Daniel and and, uh, some people from Israel were taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And now they had to live a godly life in a pagan culture. And we learn how they lived that life. How did they live for God in a culture that was antagonistic for God? How did they live a godly life in a culture that saw them as mm, odd? And it was pretty straightforward. But now in chapter 7, and really through the rest of the book, we have some, uh, it's much less clear, a little more challenging, because here we have Uh, a series of visions, a series of dreams. And there's all sorts of vivid imagery in these dreams. You have uh, crazy looking beasts, you know, four headed leopards and, you know, lions with wings and their wings get plucked off. And we have 
angelic visitation. And somebody, Daniel says, I don't get what this means. And so he goes and he talks to this angel who's kind of interpreting for him some things. And we get all sorts of crazy numbers like times, times and half a times and 2,300 days and 1,000, all sorts of numbers. And it's much more challenging. But that's where we're at. Let me just kind of give you a a general idea of where we are at with chapter 7. This was, say, a, a brief summary. That we saw these four earthly, we saw these four earthly beasts, and those four earthly beasts represented four kings or four kingdoms. Daniel was most concerned about the fourth beast, and not so much only the fourth beast, but this horn that came out of the head of this fourth beast and how it was boastful and arrogant. And what we learned was that until God sums everything up, kingdoms of men will come and go. I believe that what we see is that the earthly kings, these earthly kingdoms will culminate in a final king whom the Lord destroys quickly, and then he establishes the everlasting reign of Messiah. Just kind of a brief overview. So that's kind of where we've been. Here's where um, we're going to go today. Chapter 7 really focused on the fourth beast. Today we're going to get some detail on the second and third beast because we really haven't learned too much about the second and third beast. So... In Daniel chapter 2, we learned about the first kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. In Daniel chapter 7, we learned about the fourth kingdom. Today, we're going to learn about kingdoms 2 and 3. All right? So Daniel's going to make sure that we understand all four of these kingdoms that are going to rise up. We're also going to encounter another boastful, arrogant horn that comes out of the head of one of these um, beasts. And um, I, I do want to just alert you that the horn of chapter 8 and the horn of chapter 7 are different, okay? They are not the same individual. I'll leave it there. You can read that. And and so chapter 8 is going to fill in some of the details that we did not see in chapters 2 and chapter 7. Okay, so are you with me? Chapter 8 is about beast number 2 and 3. And uh, so let's read our text and then embark on this rather fascinating vision. Chapter 8, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which was in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Uli Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, behold, a ram standing on the banks of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west, across the face of the whole earth, without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him 
come close to the ram and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns and the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that man that makes desolate and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which the four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. He shall cause fearful destruction, and he shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints." By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper and under his hand and with his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken, but not but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I arose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Well, I'm glad Daniel didn't understand it. That gives me some level of comfort. <clears throat> so what we have here, I think, uh, first of all, let's, let's look at the timing of all of this. So the first thing is that this happens in the third year of Belshazzar. Now, you should note then that Chapter 7 was in the first year of Belshazzar. This one's in the third year of Belshazzar. Remember, Belshazzar was the final king in Babylon. All right? And so in the first year, Daniel saw this vision. In the third year, um, he saw this vision. How many recall what happened in chapter 5? Does anybody remember what year of Belshazzar chapter 5 occurred? 
Not the first. The last, all right, is actually the 14th year of Belshazzar. So you can see that the book of Daniel is not always written chronologically. Um, We're going back and forth. Uh, That's very typical in the Bible. Many books in the Bible are not strictly chronological. When we studied Judges, we saw a lot of those events were not chronological. And um, anyways, that's another subject. But so this happened in the third year of Uh, of Belshazzar. So by this time, Daniel's probably in his 60s, maybe maybe upwards of 70 years old. If if Daniel came into Babylon when he was, say, 14 or 15, we're just kind of taking a guess. We knew he was a kind of a teenager, a young boy. And this happens in the uh, the third year of Belshazzar. Probably he's in his 60s by this time. And um, And so that just kind of gives us a little bit of a setting. And he has this dream or he has this vision, really. A vision appeared to me um, after the one that he saw in chapter 7. So a couple of years after the the vision in chapter 7, he has this vision. Now, this one's a little more interesting. He says, I saw, I I thought that I was in Susa. And um, so he sees this ram with two horns and... um, and that it's budding eastward and westward and I'm sorry, northward and southward and westward. It doesn't go east. And what we learn from this then is that verse 20 tells us exactly who this ram with the two horns are. I like that. We don't have to guess. We don't have to worry about it. The ram with the two horns is the Medo-Persian Empire. That's it. The two horns. One horn would probably be the the kingdom of the Medes, and the second horn would be the kingdom of Persia. And we note that one horn got larger than the other. And we know from history that the Persian army um, pretty much subdued the the Median Empire. Empire and Cyrus, king of Persia, became much more powerful. So we see then that this Medo-Persian Empire is the uh, ram or the yeah the ram that Daniel sees. We also see that it is uh, conquering various lands, that it's an expansionist empire. It's budding westward and southward and northward. And, And we know from history then that this Persian Empire controlled more territory than any other empire up until that time. It was massive, the amount of of land. I mean, the Babylonian Empire was large, but it was nowhere near as large as the Medo-Persian Empire, which followed it. In fact, Persia became the dominant kingdom. It began it gained control of media in 550 BC. We also learn, very interesting, that this ram did as he pleased. He magnified himself. This seems to be very common amongst these kings that, um, or these beasts that Daniel sees. We learned back in chapter 7 that the, the little horn was boastful and arrogant. It did as he pleased. We learned that Nebuchadnezzar, his big issue was that he did what he pleased. He thought that, hey, I'm the king. I can do whatever I want. And what is being taught us here is, well, he does whatever he wants and nobody can conquer him until... God decides to send somebody else along and he falls. So we're just kind of setting the stage here. He does what he pleases um, and none can stand before him and none can stand before him at least for a while. Because you see, grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Here's a little picture of a 
the Medo-Persian Empire. And so here's Babylon. This is where Daniel resides. Um, here's Susa, where the vision, he, he has a vision that he's in Susa by, the, by one of the canals. But you can see it's a rather large piece of property there. So um, the Medo-Persian Empire was massive in its territory. So none can stand before him until God says, well, you've bloomed long enough. Your flower is going to fade and I'm going to bring another empire in and it's going to do as it pleases and it will do so for as long as I say so and then it will also fade and another one will rise up. That seems to be the common theme that runs through the book of Daniel. Kingdoms come and kingdoms go, but God's kingdom endures forever. So that's what we have. We have the Medo-Persian Empire. It's interesting, well... I'll get to that. So we have the Medo-Persian Empire. But then what happens is Daniel sees another, sees another animal. This one's a goat. And this goat comes from the West. And uh, fortunately, we learn exactly who this goat is. Read verse 21. And the goat is the king of Greece. So after the Medo-Persian Empire um, came, uh, Greece came into power. And we note that this, it says that this ram came as though it was kind of just, it wasn't touching the ground and it has this idea of being swift. And we know that Greece, under the rule of Alexander the Great, one of the things that Alexander did was he was swift. He moved quickly. He came in, conquered, and kept going. And he, um, in fact, he only really reigned for just a few years, maybe 10 years or so, and then he died. And so this is the kingdom of Greece with one large horn. We're told the large horn is the first king. That's Alexander the Great. Um, he comes in and he swiftly moves across the territory. He tramples the ram and he magnifies himself greatly. And then it tells us that this horn is broken off. That is, Alexander the Great stops being king. He dies and four horns come up after him. After Alexander the Great died, guess how many guess how many divisions the kingdom of Greece got divided up into? Yeah, four. Good trick question there, huh? So the kingdom of Greece comes in. The horn is its first king, Alexander the Great. It gets broken off. Alexander dies. The kingdom gets divided up into four kingdoms. And I'm not going to go into great detail on that. You can go back to your... Um, history and learn that because what's going to happen is now the vision turns its focus to one of those horns. Just one. It's not interested in all four. You have to remember that biblical history is accurate. It is true history, but it is very limited history. It is not concerned with every culture and every and, and every um, army and every empire that has ever existed. It is limited history. It is limited to God's redemptive history, how God goes about redeeming mankind. And so the focus tends to be on God's people and where God is ruling and reigning. And so this focus now turns onto the one king who happens to get that area of, um, the, of the Greek empire that um, includes Israel. 
And that's all we're going to concern ourselves with. Those other three kings, the Bible isn't concerned with, not because they're not important, but they don't play a role in redemptive history. And this other horn, the one that concerns itself with the nation of Israel, um, is of importance to the biblical authors. And we learn that this little horn started small and then it grew in power. And here's the thing. Pretty much every Bible student um, even unbelieving Bible students are pretty much in agreement with who this individual is, who this horn is. It is Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, literally, it's Antiochus for Epiphanes. But, um, and we learn quite a bit about Antiochus from the scripture, from verses 12, 9 through 12 and 23 through 25. We learn quite a bit about this, this horn that began small and grew great and became really one of the most despicable individuals who has ever lived. Um, he was an utterly horrible, horrible man. I don't know that there's any good thing that, that can be said about him. He died? <laughs> and unless he repented, he will receive just justice from the God whom he defied, and he defied God massively. Antiochus Epiphanes came into power in 175 B.C., and he reigned to 164 B.C., and I, was, I had to double-check my math when I was going over it. That's a really long time for one guy. And I checked and double-checked and then checked again. And yeah, that's really how long he reigned. He died in 163 B.C., so he's a pretty old guy. Um, so he reigned a long time, and, um, and he became quite arrogant and proud. In fact, he entitled, he gave himself the title Theos Antiochus Epiphanes, which means the illustrious god Antiochus. Even the Greek army didn't put up with that. They had problems with it. I mean, the Greek army, the Greeks had all kinds of gods, right? But even they had problems. Like, really? I don't think so. So, but what are you going to do when your general, your commanding officer who can put you to death says, I am Theos Antiochus Epiphanes. Well, then you just kind of nod your head and go about your business. And we see in verse 11 that this horn became great, even as great as the prince of the hosts. So he magnified himself, claiming to be God. He came to power by betrayal and cunning, which we see in verse 23. And the, that he is a king of bold face. He understands riddles and he shall arise. He comes around by cunning. And the Antiochus Epiphanes came about by cunning. Basically, if you are willing to betray your friend and benefit Antiochus, Antiochus was your friend. If he could maneuver or position himself or flatter or do something in order for him to gain power, Antiochus would do it. That was the type of individual he was. And so he came to power by betrayal and by cunning. But our author is most interested in what was Antiochus, this little horn, what was his, how did he deal with God's people? And here we find that he was um, just horrific. He came into Jerusalem and 
he replaces the high priest with somebody of his own choosing. So at this point now, the high priest was, uh, came about by, by family. Um, you had to be a Levite and you had to be of the right family, a, a, you know, lineage of Aaron and all of this. But boastful kings like this want to get their own puppet rulers installed. And since the high priest was a powerful individual, Antiochus says, you, the rightful high priest, you're out. I'm going to install my own guy. And of course, this upset the Jews greatly. They couldn't do much. But one, of the, one day, Antiochus had some dealings over in Egypt, and he went over to Egypt and started uh, um, fighting over in Egypt. And the rumor was that he died in battle in Egypt. So the Jews back in Israel said, well, Antiochus is dead. Let's get rid of this puppet high priest and reinstall a rightful high priest. And so the problem was, was that Antiochus was not dead. Antiochus was very much alive. And when he realized and got back to Jerusalem and saw that his orders had been defied and that the Jews had reinstituted a rightful high priest, well, he took matters into his own hands. And in three days, he killed 40,000 Jews. He attacked Jerusalem and just slaughtered men, women, and children. And that wasn't enough. He entered into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, and he sacrificed a pig on the altar. Then, as if that wasn't enough, he set up a statue of Zeus in the temple. So, he's like, well, I'm not just going to put down your religion I am going to utterly squash it. I'm going to do away with your festival days. I'm going to do away with your feast days. I'm going to do away with your holy days. I'm going to do away with your priesthood. I'm going to do away with everything. I'm going to set up my own religion and in place of yours. And this is what we read in Daniel. He's going to do away with days and holy days and sacrifices. And that's exactly what he did. He unleashed a time of unprecedented persecution on the Jewish people. He began to destroy the very people of God. He removed the regular sacrifice, which we read in Daniel chapter 8. He dismantled Jewish worship. He made the Jews eat unclean meat. He profaned the Sabbath and he profaned other feast days and he forbade circumcision. This is exactly what we read going on, that this little horn is going to do in Daniel chapter 8. I personally think is that this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, um, you know, later in the New Testament we read about a, a final kingdom or a final king who seems to be utterly um, brutal. I think that Antiochus Epiphanes is a foreshadowing of that final king ruler Um, that is to come. Um, He seems to foreshadow it perfectly. And in fact, we see that he died and came back to life, more or less. He didn't really die, but the idea was that he's dead. And then all of a sudden he's alive. And so we see some of these parallels um, uh, displayed in Antiochus. He defiles the temple. He forbids worship. He persecutes those who worship God, um, slaughters them without any hesitation whatsoever.
So that's a picture of Antiochus Epiphanes. And then we get this question. How long is this going to happen? How long does this guy reign? Is he going to just go on forever? Well, we're told then that he gets to do this for 2,300 evenings and mornings. And let me just give you um, a little bit of idea of what's going on here. Uh, I don't know. I know I'm not supposed to say that. I'm supposed to be here and say that I know everything exhaustively and perfectly. I'm a student of the Bible, and I'll be honest with you. I do not understand every single thing that's written in the Bible. Um, (laughs) Sorry to burst your bubble. We're going to have a mass exodus now. Everybody is so... um, but I know, I, like you, I, I study it and I try to, I wrestle with it and some things I get and you guys have blessed me. You give me a lot of time so that I can study scripture and, and I'm thankful for this. But I'll give you some of the ideas here on the 2300 evenings and mornings. And the first one is that it's not 2300 days, it's 1150 days and that is basically 1150 um, So. It's half of that because um, two sacrifices per day, basically, is what they would be saying. That's one view. And what this would do then is that then what you would say is that in December of 167 B.C., when the altar was desecrated by Antiochus Epiphanes, um, that began the, the 1,150 days. Those two sacrifices were taken away. So on December 14th, 164 would be the day when this was the day when the sacrifices began again. Okay? So they're saying, well, from 160, December 167 to December 14th, 164, we know that's the day the sacrifices started up again. So that's the 1,150 days. Perfect. Except it doesn't add up to 1,150 days. It's approximately 1,150 days. It's pretty close, but it's not exact. So anyways, that's one idea and it's fairly popular. Here's the other idea. Forget this dividing things in half. Take it as it says. The Bible says 2,300 days. Let's just go and stick with 2,300 days. Why do we have to... Try to make something fit when the Bible is so clear. And we know that the temple was restored on December 25th, 165. So let's go back from there and reckon back 2,300 days, which brings us to September 6th, 171. But nothing happened on that day. So then we go, well, let's go back to the time that the, the... Let's start when the temple sacrifices ended and go forward 2,300 days and that, nothing happened. Um, at least that we know of, perhaps historians will come and find something that's possible. So the problem, there are all sorts of different ways of counting the 2000, you know, when do we start the counting or when do we end the counting? And people have tried, you know, well, we know when temple worship was restored and we can count back 2,300 days and we get nothing. So that's a good idea. There's, there's another idea, and that is, this is apocalyptic literature, so why are we taking things literally? We should take things symbolically. And you know I tend to favor that, but even here I'm not so convinced. And that is, they would say, um, that 2,300 days is just short of seven years. And that God's trials and judgments are often measured 
by seven. And so what this is saying is that Antiochus Epiphanes does not fulfill the totality of God's wrath. That's left for the final individual who will come in history. That's the idea. You know I tend to favor a symbolic, but I'm not convinced. Here's where I will default to then. You're saying, well, gee, why do we have this? I'll be honest with you. I, I don't know 100%. Here's the, something that I can default to and say that I know with certainty. And I think that regardless of whether I understand all of the details, this is what I do know, is that his reign is 2,300 days or mornings and evenings. Regardless how you understand that, here's the thing. His time is limited. He has a beginning and he has an end. And his beginning and his end is determined by the God who reigns on high and not by his own power. He does not determine when his reign of terror begins and he does not begin decide when it ends. That is decided by a sovereign, holy God. And when it's time for his reign to end, it will not be 2,301 days. It will be 2,300. Exactly. Whatever that means, whatever his time limit is, that is what his time limit is because God reigns. And grass withers and flowers fade, but God reigns forever and ever and his word is always true. So, I don't know exactly what that means. I do know that. So, that's what we do. When we come to a passage of scripture that we don't understand, we default back to what do we know? That we do know. And I think I can state that with great confidence and with great certainty. So then I get to this, what we will call what the Puritans would call uses. We call it applications, but I thought, well, I'd just bring in a good Puritan word. Uses. But this really baffled me, and I really, I really struggled with this, with this question as I'm studying Daniel chapter 8. Of what use is Daniel chapter 8? Uh, why do we have it? I mean, first of all, we wanted to understand of what value was it to Daniel's readers, the original readers, of what use was it to them? After all, all of these events were going to happen hundreds of years after they lived and died. Of what use is Daniel chapter 8? Why do they need to know about a Greek empire? Why do they care about Alexander the Great? Why do they care about any of these things that's going to happen long after they have died? And of what use is it for you and me? Because after all, we can just go to a history book and read this stuff. So that's, I really wrestled with what is the purpose of Daniel chapter 8? And, and, I, and I know that's... Maybe that sounds odd to you, but I do. I, I, I question the text. Every time I come into the text, I, que I ask questions about it. I don't question in that. I doubt it. I ask questions about it. And one of the questions I have, why is this here? I'll give you some thoughts then. And, and you may have your own, but I'll give you a few of mine. Why do we have this chapter? Well, the first one, and certainly the most obvious one that we can come to, is to demonstrate to us the trustworthiness of God's word. In fact, liberal commentators, people who do not believe that the Bible is true because they have denied the supernatural and they have denied the, um, that something could happen outside of the realm of um, of what can be measured and what can be tested. 
their response to this chapter is, well, it had to be, have been written after Antiochus Epiphany died, or at least during his time. Because after all, it can't be that God actually knows history. Or God knows what's going to happen down the road, because that would be supernatural. That would imply that somebody has some sort of supernatural insight. And since we've denied the supernatural, it can't be that. It must be that Daniel, there was no Daniel, that some guy wrote this around 163 B.C. after the events had already occurred. Because how can you be that accurate and that specific unless you actually saw it? And you're right, if you deny the supernatural, I think that's a reasonable explanation. But we serve a God in heaven, and the God in heaven, he is the one who creates days and makes days and knows history, and he can tell his people. So we see, so people who are going to be enduring this suffering, they're going to read this and say, our God has full control over this situation. So we see the trustworthiness of God's word. We read then also um, and to camp on this, then in John chapter 17, verse 17, um, Jesus is praying his high priestly prayer. And he says this, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. But that's not just a Jesus New Testament concept. Second Samuel seven twenty-eight, And now, O Lord, you are God and your words are true. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Psalm 119, 160. The sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. The grass withers and the flowers fade. 22,300 mornings and evenings. But the word of our God endures forever. And let me just go off on a short rant. And that is we are Christians, not because it is morally superior to some other view. We are not Christians because it somehow helps me live a better life. We are Christians because it is truth. All right. It is objectively and historically true. There is a God in heaven who created all things by the word of his power. He made mankind. Mankind rebelled against him, sinned against him, and the wages of sin is death. And that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins and imputed, that is credited, the righteousness of his Holy Son to us and credited and imputed our sins to him so that we are declared righteous and we can stand before a, this holy God, holy and without blame and without shame for those who are in Christ Jesus. We believe that is objectively true. I went through that on, on our Resurrection Day um, service showing how the empty tomb is objectively true. This is so important to us because, you know what? I do not follow Christianity simply because I know people who say, well, you know what? I like the Christian faith because it's, I like its high moral value. And in a culture where, you know, uh, beauty and, and, and morality is becoming more and more crass, I like the idea of a good, moral, pure, and honest. I like the Ten Commandments. I don't know if they like the first one, though, you know. But anyways, nevertheless, I like nine of them. You know, nine of them. I don't know if I like that second one, though. So I like eight of them. You know, eight of them are really, really good. And, uh, you know, anyway, though, but, but, but Christianity is not just simply a superior philosophy over others. We don't follow it because of that. We follow it because it's true. 
Actually, I should say it is truth. Your word is truth. And this is so important in, in our culture, in our day to day, because truth has been subjectivized. It's subjective. And becoming more and more subjective. And I'll just give you an example. And I know many of you have relatives and, and friends who are facing um, this very, very difficult issue. So I say this not in some sort of um, demeaning or even condescending or condemnatory way. But we live in a, in a culture that is so where truth is subjective. And here is a great example. And that is a man can call himself a woman. All right. And say, basically, this is the way I feel. I feel like a woman. And so therefore, I am a woman. But that's not objectively true. If a scientist, if the person died and the scientist came and looked at their bone structure and looked at their DNA and looked at all, they'd say, that's an in, that person's a man. I don't know how they felt. I don't know what they thought. But I know scientifically, objectively, that that is a male. And people are saying, well, I feel like I was born into the wrong gender. Of course, there are people who will tell you then that they have been born into the wrong species. I'm not joking there. There are individuals who say, you know what? I really believe that I'm a wolf. You can laugh. This, this is the spirit because that's how I feel. There are people who believe that they are serpents or they are um, birds or some other. Be- They're saying the problem is, is that some people say the problem is I've been born into the wrong gender. But the same reasoning applies to those people who say, I was born into the wrong species. There are people who say, I was born into the wrong race. I'm really African-American. But are you? I saw an interview on a, a YouTube channel, and this individual was, uh, he's, it turns out he's a 5'10 white guy. He stands 5 feet tall, 10 inches, and he's a white guy. And he's asking people about, can a person be any gender they want to be? And they said, yeah. He goes, so can I be Chinese? And they said, yeah, you can be Chinese. He said, can I be a a Chinese woman? Yes, you can be a Chinese woman. Can I be a six foot, ten inch Chinese woman? Yeah, and everybody's saying, yeah, if that's what you want to be. I'm just wondering if then he claimed to be a six foot, ten inch Chinese woman, if he applied for Title IX benefits under a basketball scholarship, if he would get that. Probably not. They would say, you're a five foot, ten white guy. That's another issue. I I don't mean to make light of this. I'm simply saying, people are saying, if that's what you feel, but the truth is, is that he was a five foot, ten inch white guy. That's the truth. He was not a six, ten Chinese woman. Even if he felt like it, even if he identified with that, even if he truly believed that that's who I am in truth, that's not who he is. And we need to understand, this is why it's important to understand that God's word is true. Truth and truth is becoming more and more subjective and you and I are becoming more and more odd because we actually believe that there are some things that are true and some things that are not. And so I do not follow the Christian faith because I feel it's the best thing for me. 
It's the best thing for my family, the best way to raise my kids. I believe it because it is truth that there is a God in heaven who made everything. And you and I are accountable to him. And we have all sinned and fallen short of his glory. And the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in him. And if you will repent of your sins, the real God who actually reigns and rules in heaven will forgive you of your sins, call you his child, make you an heir of all of his possessions and cause you to live forever with him. That is truth. Whether you feel good about it or not. So the the first thing we have in this is that God's word is truth. And here we see the trustworthiness of God's word. If you ever begin to say, I wonder if God's word is true, go back and read Daniel chapter 8. I think you'll be reinvigorated. Well, there's some other things here that I think are important for us. And when we look at Daniel's response, I'm impressed by Daniel's response over this. The first thing is, is that Daniel is moved when he hears these events. Um, Even though these events aren't going to happen in his lifetime, you'll notice that he does not have relief, but sickness. Now, see, me and Daniel are different because if somebody said, if I had a vision and it says all of these bad things are happening and people are going to die and get slaughtered, I'm like, oh, no, no. Well, but it's not going to happen to you. It'll happen to people a hundred years. Oh, good. <laughs> Where is it going to happen to me and my wife? And it's like, oh, you're telling me it's not going to happen until 150 years down, 300 years down the road? Fine. Oh, man, that's too bad. <laughs> right? Daniel's not like that. Daniel is sick to his stomach because he knows God's people are going to be slaughtered for truth. And he weeps and he mourns over that. I'm like going, oh, God, I need to be like Daniel. Daniel's heart is broken for people he doesn't know. Do you weep for people you don't know? This is why we do missions. Are we weeping over our brothers and sisters who are slaughtered for the cause of Christ because they are living in, in, under people like Antiochus Epiphanes? Do we weep for our brothers and sisters who died in the earthquake in, in Japan and who died in the earthquake in Ecuador just over the past week? Our brothers and sisters and, and, and the church, is, he's got, are we weeping? Are we breaking? Daniel breaks for his brothers and sisters. He doesn't know them. He'll never know them. He loved God's people and he grieved over their, their hardship that they were going to endure. Here's another lesson that I think we, uh, we gained from Daniel chapter 8. Daniel was overcome and lay sick. He was overwhelmed by God's word. God's word overwhelmed him. Let me give you this. God's word, when we are serious about it, it will overwhelm you. It will, it will overcome you. So I'll start very narrow here. For those of you who have been gifted and called by God to teach God's word, whether it's in a Bible study or whether it's in some other setting, expect it. God's word will wear you out. It will wear you to the nub. I go home from this thing and I just, I'm gone. All right. I'm done on Sunday. It will wear you out. Sometimes after studying God's word, Simone and I are just shot. There is nothing in us 
we're thinking, what did we do? We didn't do anything. We sat down, had a cup of coffee, and studied. God's word will wear you out. But it is not just those of you who have some sort of teaching ministry. If you teach your children, you will be worn out by teaching God's word. God's word will exhaust you, and I will encourage you in this. There is no better work that you can do than to proclaim God's word. It will wear you out. It will fatigue you. It will tire you out. And I say that not to discourage you. I'm saying that because it is truth, but I'm also saying it because it is a good work. Get up, get on your feet, and keep going and preach God's word. Prepare it faithfully. I'm not saying that sometimes you're going to get up dancing and enjoy, and other times, but I'll tell you right now, it will it will exhaust you. So if you are training your children, if you, are, if you are sharing the gospel, when you are engaging the lost and teaching God's word, it will exhaust you. We've been dealing with an individual this week um, regarding the gospel. It has been exhausting. The back and forth. Well, I can serve God and I can do this. And why should I abandon all of my idols? You need to abandon your idols because they... They are false, and it's exhausting. And there is no better thing to be doing. There is no greater thing to be doing. The evangelist George Whitfield, one of the greatest evangelists who's ever lived, the day before he died, he was only in his mid-50s, someone said to him, Sir, you are more fit to go to bed than to preach. True, sir, he said, and then clasping his hands together, he prayed, Lord Jesus, I am weary in thy work, but not of thy work. If I have not yet finished my course, let me go and speak for three for thee once more in the fields. Seal thy truth and come home and die. Within hours, Whitfield was dead. You're no more fit than to get out of, you're more fit to stay in bed than to go preach. Yeah, you're right. And God, I am weary. But if you see fit, give me one more chance. I'm going to go out and I will proclaim your word. And then I'm going to come home and I will be happy to die. Jeremiah said that the word of God was like fire in him and he could not do anything but preach. I think this passage and Second Timothy is so apt. I, I, it just runs through my mind constantly. It's in <clears throat> chapter four, Second Timothy four, verse uh, beginning with verse six. Paul says this: "I am ready. I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the court race. I have kept the faith, and there, therefore, laid up for me a crown of glory. I'm done. I'm done." I've run the course. I've finished the race. There's nothing left for me to do. I can die. Perhaps if in the athletic realm, in the sports realm, we say that person left it all out on the field. That person left it all out on the race course. They ran the race, and when they were done, they were so utterly and completely spent and fatigued, they could not take one more step. Paul says, I can't do anything else. I'm done. And I'm not ashamed. I am not ashamed. I've done everything that I need to do. There's only one more thing for me to do, and that is to breathe my last breath and see my Savior. That's it. That is the life of the believer, to leave it all out on the field, that when you come to your last breath, you'll say, I left it all out on the field. There's nothing left for me to do. I got I'm not saying there's nothing left to be done. I'm simply saying there's nothing left for me to do. 
I did everything that God called me to do. Now I can die. And the final thing that is of value, I think, in Daniel chapter 8, seems so normal and so non-spiritual. Daniel goes back to work. So he has this great mystical experience. He, ex- he experiences the splendor and the glory of God and he sees this incredible vision. He lays sick, grieving over God's people. He's exhausted by, by proclaiming the word of God. And then he gets up and he goes back and does the king's business. And so, it's just, it's just so Daniel. And so, here's what's going on. So, so, we come to church and we sing songs and we fellowship and we enjoy one another's company and hopefully we, we are encouraged and enlightened and inspired and all of those things, maybe not every week, but hopefully most of the time we enjoy being in the presence of God's people. But tomorrow is Monday and you go back to work and you begin living your life, not like you do during when the music's going and we're raising our hands and praising God. You go back to the mundane things of work and you go about glorifying God in the job that God has called you to do. Because that is glorifying God. So when you do whatever God has called you to do, when you sell a piece of real estate or you mop a floor or you put up a roof or you do whatever it is that God has called you to do, you glorify God. God. So we come here, we celebrate, we enjoy one another's company, we eat meals together, we fellowship, and we build one another up. But tomorrow's Monday, and you'll go back to work. Do so to the glory of God. So those are just some uses that I see. So I'll conclude here with this. We've been asking these, we've been asking two questions as we've gone through the book of Daniel, and that is, how does a person... Um, honor God and live for God in a culture that is antagonistic towards God? And then the second question is, is who is the true God that is worth living for his glory? And I think we, we have seen today that the God who is worthy of living for his glory is the God who is revealed in Scripture. He is the truth, and he knows the end from the beginning, and he has every one of your days marked out, and he knows your future. And I would encourage you, so how do we live then for the glory of this God? Here's what I would say, is commit yourself to God's word, which is truth. In whatever form, whatever place you are, whether it's on the PTA committee, live for God's truth. Live for his, his uh, um, to glorify his word and give yourself to the exhausting work of ministry. That does not mean that everybody's going to become a missionary or a pastor but it does mean that you are all ministers of the glory of God and it will be exhausting at times. All right? This is why we gather together to exhort one another and build one another up and strengthen one another because it is exhausting work and there is no better work and do so until you breathe your last breath. I heard a sermon this week and it just, a statement just shook me. It was so good. He was talking about the beauty of God's church, but he said one of the functions of God's church is to prepare people to die. I want to prepare you to die. That doesn't mean you're going to die tomorrow. I know that people say, oh, that's morose. No. I want you to live for the glory of God so that on that last day when you breathe your last breath, you'll say, I have run the race. I've finished the course. There is nothing left for me to do. I will clap my hand and say, if I can go out and do one more sermon, if I can glorify God one more time, let me do so. Then I'll come home and I'll breathe my last breath and I will see you face to face. 
and I will be unashamed. I want people in this church to be prepared for that day. And until then, you will glorify God. You will love him with all of your being, even when you're exhausted. That's what Daniel, I, I think, is going on in the book of Daniel. Folks, trusting in men is precarious because grass withers and flowers fade. But the word of God endures forever. It is unchanging, it is unwavering, and is without end. Daniel saw the Messiah in chapter 7. We experience his saving work now. And Daniel lived for his glory. Let us Daniel never even knew what the Messiah was going to, knew very little about Messiah. You and I have a spirit dwelling in us. How dare we do less than what Daniel did? Let us grieve for God's people. Let us commit to the work of our Savior and let us live every day to glorify his wonderful and holy name. Let's stand and let's pray. Our gracious and most heavenly Father, you have loved us so so much. Oh Lord, where would we be without you? What would we do without such a great salvation? Father, we would be lost. We would be like blind people groping in the dark. And yet you have shown your light into our lives by your own mercy and grace. And so I pray, Father God, that you would seal these words to our heart. And if there's anything that has spoken to us, Lord God, I pray that you'd imprint it on our minds and in our lives. I pray that we would get a big vision of what's going on. So oftentimes we're only focused on our little sliver of life, Lord God, but you are working all around the world. And I think Daniel saw that you are working all through history. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to get a grand vision of your work and what you're doing and give us an idea of where we fit into that grand vision. So help us, Lord God, to do your work faithfully. And I pray, Lord God, that we would be like George Whitfield and that we would be like the Apostle Paul, leaving it all out on the field, nothing left. Expend us, Lord, expend us. Pour us out for your honor and for your glory and for the gospels, um, for the spread of the gospel across this earth. Have mercy on us now, for Christ's sake. Amen.